Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Conrad Life Report. I am Conrad, and I'm excited to be back here for the third week. So, anyway, welcome. It is Thursday, uh, October 4th, um, which happens to be my friend Gabe's birthday. I don't know if he's listening, but happy birthday, Gabe. Anyway, so, yeah, I had a pretty good week. I had a very busy week. Um, Did a lot. I didn't read as much this week as I would have normally liked to. I, uh, If you listened last week, you know that I finished that book, Differently Wired, by Deborah, Deborah Reber about about, uh, well, people, but kind of talks mostly about kids, about uh, kids who are differently wired, who are neuro, neuro-atypical. Um, and that was a great book and a quick read. And But then I didn't get to the bookstore or the library to get anything new this week. So because I always throw a book in my bag to take on the subway, um, I grabbed one of the many music books that I'm in just various stages of completion um, on, and I, I just keep them scattered around the house. Some I take to coffee shops on the weekends, some I read outside if I have some time on the weekend, or I just, you know, they're uh, next to the bed, I read at night. Um, so I picked up this book called Going Down the Road, which is, surprise, surprise, a Grateful Dead book. It's actually just, it's an ant anthology of um, articles reprinted from the beloved um, Grateful Dead fanzine, The Golden Road, which was published in the 80s and into the early 90s by noted dead scholar Blair Jackson. Um, It's actually got a cool subtitle. It's called A Grateful Dead Traveling Companion, which is what it was for me this week because it traveled with me on the F train um, to and from Midtown Manhattan. So I'd read most of it already. A lot of it's just a lot of great interviews, 80s and early 90s era interviews with individual members of the band. Um, but the one thing that I thought was actually going to be interesting enough to share um, on this show with people who don't aren't too interested in The Grateful Dead, which is, I'm assuming, most people. Um, but anyway, it's an, it's an interview in 1990 with Mickey Hart who's one of the um, two drummers in The Grateful Dead and sort of known as the more mystical one. He's very into um, all sorts of like uh, exotic instrumentation and studying of the role of um, of rhythm and society and religion and ethnomusicology. And he wrote two very well-received books. Well, I guess he wrote one called At the Edge, um, or Drumming at the Edge of Magic at the Edge was the companion album. And then a follow-up book called Planet Drum, which is more of a photo photography book of just lots of percussion instruments. So anyway, um, here's the one thing that I thought would be interesting to share. It's it's about the role of drums in both Eastern and Western um, religious traditions. And the uh, TLDR is that... Drums, of course, have a major role in Eastern religion, and they have zero role in Western religion, and there's a reason for that. So here's the question. 
uh, by the interviewer, Blair Jackson. The question says, I was intrigued by your discussion in the book about how in Western cultures, the drum ceased being used for religious purposes and was taken over instead by the military to marshal troops and such. And here's Mickey's response. Right. That's because Western religions didn't like the way drums were used in other cultures to induce trance and altered states. They wanted you to be praying to that guy on the cross, not going into a trance state. Interviewer says they still don't. And Mickey says no. Religion killed the drum in Western culture until it made its way back through rock and roll. The devil's music. Brackets laughs. Ha ha. He continues, why did people try to suppress rock and roll? Because the backbeat, the groove, took people to the other side, and that's not considered acceptable in Western cultures. Um, He continues, where does that beat come from? From Africa originally. It came across with the slave trade, found its way to New Orleans, mutated into rhythm and blues, and all of a sudden you've got rock and roll. Check it out. They're dancing, they're mambo, and they're going crazy. It's rhythm-dominated, it's got percussion galore. So it's made a tremendous revival, and melody and harmony are assuming their proper place alongside it as part of the Trinity. I love how he says Trinity at the end because it's it's um, it fits with, his, with, with Mickey's long-standing uh, placement of of rhythm and music <laughs> as something religious. And of course it's, it's a bit of a jab at Western religion um, in itself, in and of itself, which is, which is really cool. So I really found myself enjoying reading this book because a lot of these interviews take place during the era that I came up being a deadhead in. So it's kind of, it, it's great to read the sort of contemporary interviews with them. But boy, that Mickey interview, it reminded me of how much I enjoyed that book, Drumming at the Edge of Magic, uh, which I would recommend to anybody interested in music or anybody that thinks they might have even small interest in the drum. There's zero Grateful Dead in it, so don't worry about that. Um, uh, but just a fascinating, great book. It's it's um, soft cover, like it was released as soft cover. Um and it's sort of wide. It's wider than a regular paperback. And even though it's mostly prose, mostly text, there's a lot of illustration, meaning photographs. Um, but uh, it isn't just a collection of photos. It happens to be in the sort of center of the book. There's, there's photos printed on the page. Um, really good book. And if you want to listen to any Mickey Hart album um all of his solo albums they're percussion records uh some are more song based than others but they're great they're just fantastic they're by consensus they're very well received um and it notes in the beginning of this interview i closed the book again so i'm not going to open it up and find it but the um the interviewer blair jackson says that it's probably not hyperbole to say that no artist has done more to uh, raise the profile of world music than Mickey Hart, and that was probably true in 1990. Um, maybe so as today, because I'm trying to think of who else would have um, usurped that position at the top. But anyway, Mickey Hart, uh, highly recommend the book Drumming at the Edge of Magic, um, and any of his solo records. Maybe my favorite is the Digga Rhythm Band. Digga is one word, D-I-G-A, then Rhythm Band, which came out in 1976, I think, and Rygo Disc re-released released it on CD in the late 80s, and that's sort of become its... That it, it, 
it had a um, big second life because of that Rego disc release. And if you do like The Dead, I highly recommend finding a used copy somehow of Going Down the Road by Blair Jackson um, because it is fantastic and a page turner and you can pick it up and put it down and pick it up months later and it's great. Anyway, so I finished, quote unquote, finished that book and I guess I can now safely put it up on the bookshelf now that it's complete. Um, So I did go ahead and purchase Dreaming the Beatles by Rob Sheffield, as I said I wanted to do. Um, I feel another Beatles phase coming on and I kind of feel like reading about the Beatles and this book is... Is was um, very well reviewed, so I bought it, um, and I'm about 70 pages in. It's a super fast read, and it is so much fun. The chapters are about <laughs> they're like eight pages long. They read fast, and there's it's there's so fun. Um, it's not in any chronological order, um, and the, like for example, I just finished a chapter on Ringo, who is amazing and he talks about how there's a divide between people that think Ringo is the best and people that think Ringo is hardly competent and I very much think that he's the best and he's so much fun and there's an there's a chapter on George there's a chapter on the screaming fans and like I said I'm about I think a quarter of the way through but I love it dreaming the Beatles so it was just odd coincidence because I purchased the book um, on Tuesday of this week and then Yesterday morning, Wednesday, woke up to the news that uh, the Beatles and longtime recording engineer Jeff Emmerich had passed away of a heart attack at the age of 72, I think. Um, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, Emmerich, uh, was the engineer at Abbey Road. He started as a teenager. His second day on the job, he was helping with the Beatles, assisting George Martin, which must have just been amazing, obviously. Uh, he wrote his own book called Here, There, and Everywhere, which came out uh, in the aughts sometime, 2006, I think. Anyway, I got to interview him for Blender uh, eight years ago or so. Um, I think the I think the, the peg was that it was coming out on in paperback. Anyway, what a just honor to speak to this person who was just so nice, um, so smart and well-spoken and quietly enthusiastic about everything and um he also jeff also produced um jeff emmerich also produced imperial bedroom by elvis costello 1982 elvis costello um which i think is probably you know it it is one of the albums i've always said is one of my favorite of all time it's in, in a rotation of albums that since i was a kid i've said this is my favorite record of all time if somebody asked um so being the Elvis Costellos and and Imperial Bedroom super fan, I I was and still am. I asked Jeff Emmerich at the end of the interview. I said, "Do you know that Columbia Records, the label, put out these full page ads at the time of the of the release of Imperial Bedroom that had a picture of the artwork, and then like underneath it, it said masterpiece question mark, which I think the label was trying to." sort of um, feed off of Elvis Costello's critical acclaim. And this was a very big orchestral, uh, lush sounding record and the type, the type of album that critics go nuts over, at least on paper. And they, they did here too, but they wrote masterpiece with a question mark. I guess they didn't want to take the chance or jinx it or anything. Um, I knew of this little factoid thanks to one of the many Elvis Costello interviews in musician magazine that I purchased and still owned. And 
from the 80s. And so I brought this up with Jeff Emmerich, and he he had no idea that the label had done that or that these ads existed. And there was just this pause, and you could sense that he was thinking about it and looking off into the distance on the other end of the line. And then he sort of chuckled, and he just said, I never knew that. Um, anyway, so I got to speak with Jeff Emmerich eight years ago, and that was great. Uh, oh, my favorite part of Dreaming the Beatles so far, I just wanted to point out and share, is there's a chapter on the song Dear Prunes, which is, you know, in my top 10 favorite Beatles songs, probably. And it's, it's you know, obviously a beloved Beatles song. But it's one of these songs that rather famously, famously now, but it wasn't well known back then, that uh, Ringo Starr does not drum on. Paul plays the drums because the song was recorded in late August 1968 during the two-week period that Ringo had quit the Beatles um, and just resigned from the band and, and flew off to one of the islands in the Mediterranean. And during those two weeks, the band just didn't know what to do. The, the rest of them, the three of them, they just kept recording and they did Dear Prudence. And Paul played the drums and he played the drums very well. If you listen to the to Dear Prudence, the drums are excellent. Um, and throughout the last verse, it's just um, constant. It's basically the, the beat just, is just a s- series of unending fills and they're Ringo-esque fills, drum fills. Just brilliant, brilliant move on Paul's part. Uh, but obviously, I think everyone was happy when Ringo returned. So, books. So, next week I'll I'll have finished Dreaming the Beatles and can speak more about it. And um, maybe I'll, I'll be ready to move on to the next book in the three-body trilogy. I held it at Barnes & Noble. I almost bought it, but I waited. Um, waited to get it. I'll get it next week. So music. So last week after my soft rock show with with my crew down at Three's Brewing, um, I basically ended up going back to listening to The National a lot uh, because I was I sat I was scheduled to I had been invited to sit in with them last week and they played two shows here in New York City at Forest Hill Stadium um, out in Queens at the Tennis Club off like a seventy first Continental Avenue. And I played with them last year at Forest Hills, too, so I was very much looking forward to it because, A, it's always fun to play with the National. I've been playing with them um, back to 2010, but before that, uh, Brian, their drummer, is one of my best friends. He had played with my band Taka Taka, too, as sort of a second drummer role, percussionist role, and that's what I do when I play with them. I'm, I'm sort of the percussionist to his, obviously, his main drummer role. Anyway, so given that I figured I'd be playing just about the whole set um, and all of the, well, I mean, I kind of know the Nationals catalog very well just because I listen to it a lot and I like their, I, I like them a lot. They're, they're probably my, my favorite band and they happen to be friends of mine and I happen to play with them. So um I listened to Sleep Well Beast, their record that came out last year. I just kind of put it on repeat for a few days, um, not even paying close attention, just letting it seep into my subconscious so I would know what to do when we'd be playing the songs on stage. And it worked. Um, So 
Yeah, it was a fun day. Last year when I played with them, I actually did a sound check. I showed up in the morning to sound check or the afternoon, I should say. But um, this year it was like, it seemed to be like in the past couple of years, I've played with the National and also the Bob Weir tour um, and their in their Brooklyn shows. And the Bob Weir band is basically the National and the crew is basically the National too. So it's just... Um, I've sat in a couple of times recently, so I think they just knew that they know what I'm bringing and they know how to set me up and I'm not, I don't need to be there for sound check, uh, which is great because I didn't have to get there at 10 in the morning or whatever Saturday and I could relax and go for my run. And, um, so basically I've settled into bringing a set of rototoms, three, three little rototoms, uh, by Remo, they, they stand up on this huge stand and they're essentially drum heads and rims without shells and the rims provide the resonance. You don't need shells and they have their own, they have their own distinct kind of high pitched, uh, sharp sound with nice, nice attack. And you can also tune them rather easily simply by turning the actual rims. So you can tune them on, on the fly as opposed to taking out a drum key and tuning the lug screws one by one. And it's nice you can do that because rototoms famously go out of tune very fast. Um, so, but basically, that's my my setup with the national um, and the weird stuff. Last year was just the rototoms, and then as Brian and I always refer to it, the bag of tricks, which is just bringing a whole collection of shakers, tambourines of various sizes, little neat percussion instruments, claves, all sorts of sticks like uh, broomsticks. Um, not real broomsticks, but these are these collections of uh, of kind of like broomstick type stuff, but wrapped together called broomsticks. Pro Promark makes them. Um, sticks, brushes, which I always bring brushes, but I never end up using them with them. And uh, some mallets, which I also did not use, but they were there just in case. And this weird sort of snake thing of... I don't know, it's hard to describe, but if you remember those like long toys as a kid where they're you can kind of twist them into all these different shapes. Uh, they're made up of all these little like two inch long modules and they're geometric and you can twist them. Anyway, I have a thing like that, like a sort of rustic, um, version of it and it's filled with shaker stuff. So it's nice because you can drape it on stuff. You can just hang it off and it has a kind of cool look to it and has a neat sound. So I brought that and I ended up using that on the last song of the set, which is called Vander Lyle, which is a thing where they, it's all acoustic. It's, um, the crowd sings along, everything's unamplified except for, um, well, everything's unamplified and the acoustic guitar is held up to a microphone. That's the only thing that's kind of amplified in the, in the, in the venue. So I use that snake shaker. I actually never called it a snake. Brian called it a snake when he borrowed it from me like eight years ago or so. Um, and I think I got it from Gabe, my old Taka bandmate, um, and still musical colleague, but I don't know where he got it from, but I sort of inherited it because I'm a drummer and he's not, and he was fine with me inheriting it long ago. So yeah, um, so the process for sitting in is, 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 is funny because when I first started playing with them, uh, we, we rehearsed a lot and I rehearsed with them. I basically joined their rehearsals. Um, I did not like they needed to rehearse with me because, um, but, and we thought about it a lot. And Brian and I would talk on the phone a lot, uh, for the fun of it. Cause, um, we talked on the phone anyway. And 
um, before a show, we would take the set list when it was ready, go to a random corner of the venue. Or I remember at the Beacon Theater, we would go across the street to that Starbucks on like 75th and Broadway or whatever and and sit there at like 7 p.m. and drink coffee and go through the set list. Like, on this song, do this. On this song, do this. Maybe lay back on this song. On this one, come in like, you know, forte, play loud and, you know, and this one come in during the bridge and then stay in or drop out here. Anyway, and it was fun. I have all my set list would have all these notes on it, uh, which was great because when I'd actually be playing live, you know, before every song would start, I'd look down like, ah, oh, yes, that's the notes for this song, pick up my things, then play it. But over the years, we've just become even more comfortable playing with each other, and he's fine with just giving me <laughs> random casual notes. Last year at Forest Hills, we sat down and discussed the set list for, I'd say, about 60 seconds max. And he was saying, do this, do this, sit out here, sit out here. And I said, oh, but I would love to love to play on that song. And he said, all right, sit in for that one, stay in. And then when it came time to play the show, um, I was on for the first two songs and then I came off. And I was off at the side of the stage while they were playing and I was talking to um, Josh Kaufman, my friend who was also playing in that show, like me going on and off. And all of a sudden, while the band's playing, um, Kyle Lewis, who's Brian's longtime drum tech and good friend of, of mine now, too, just casually walks over from the drum set, sort of out of view of the crowd, but still, it was funny to see the band's playing, and here he comes, and he comes over, and he's very laid back, and he says, hey, what are you doing um, right now? And I said, well, I'm just standing here. And he said, well, Brian wants to know if you want to play on the next song, which I can't remember what it was, but um, he said, he wants to know if you want to play on um, blah, blah, blah. And I said, sure. He said, okay, come on over, whenever. So I went over a few seconds later, and I was up there playing the next song, and then Brian turned around at the end of the song. He said, he said stay up here for the next one. I was like, all right. And then I just never left the stage. Um, and so this is like to complete the evolution of playing with them. This year on f- Saturday night, night one, when it came around to um, getting near stage time, I got a copy of the set list around 7.30, but I couldn't really find Brian, and he was into his usual pre, pre-show pre routine, which involves a lot of stretching and walking around and drumming um, on his practice pad, but I think he was just walk, walking around, and um, his wife and kids were, Beth and kids were here from Cincinnati, so Beth and the kids were here, so I think he was playing, he was with them too, so I couldn't find him, and at like literally 7.54 p.m. on Saturday, and stage time is 8 p.m., so at 7.54, I said, Brian, do you want to like look at the set list at all? Do you want to talk about it? He said, do you have it? Did you get a copy? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, let me look. And so we put it down and we're looking at it. And he said, and I said, oh, I don't have my pen, my favorite pen. And he goes, oh, I have a pen that you'll love. And he digs in his bag, takes about a minute to find it. And then he tells, takes 30 seconds to tell me about the pen. And he got it at a hotel somewhere. And uh, I think it's pretty funny because at this point, it's like 7.56 now. And we haven't even gone through the set list. And he looks through and he goes, first song which is um quiet song uh called uh nobody else will be there he's like yeah you don't don't really do anything for that one i was like okay so i'll just hang off stage he's like come on for this and then go off for this and then come back and so then he started saying some numbers that he's like oh you should did you want to play this i said yeah i want to play all of it and he said okay then yeah just play it all so our planning strategic session ended up taking about 45 total seconds. Whereas eight years ago, it was 
hours of conversation on the phone. Mind you, we enjoyed that conversation, so it wasn't like it needed that. But And then rehearsals and like a big sit-down strategy an hour before the set. And now it was just like, oh yeah, just uh, do this, this, and this, and well, just do everything. And it feels great to A, be invited to do everything, but B, just um, have that relation, a musical relationship with someone where you just know each other so well. And he trusts me um, to just weave in and out and contribute something, but not also not get in the way, which is just a nice feeling. It's just a nice musical feeling, very fulfilling. And playing the show, obviously, was great. Um, and there was a moment where I was brought out to the front of the stage unexpectedly, and it was halfway through the show, we're playing the song Wasp Nest from their Cherry Tree album, and most of the song is just sleigh bells, just like, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, ring, 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 and you do that the entire song. So I'm just quietly playing these little sleigh bells, which are actually Oliver's sleigh bells, because um, every time I play a show, I end up stealing like a bunch of his like kids percussion, which sound great. So I'm playing Oliver sleigh bells and Matt, the singer had taken a break, you know, there was a break an instrumental break and he grabbed the big sleigh bells that are up at the front of the stage. And then he turned around and he saw me and he came over and he pulled me. And at first I didn't budge because I didn't know what he was doing. And then he like pulled me again. And he looked at me and he, he was just kind of smiling and he, he just sort of, I'd like come on so we'd go up there and we just start ringing into the um into his mic and I'm just kind of playing straight man because I don't know what else to do and he's doing all these little dances he's, he's so good at being a front man and then he introduces me as um uh like motherfucking Conrad Doucette or Conrad motherfucking Doucette or one of those um which was really funny and the crowd like exploded because it was like hearing him like say that was probably unexpected, like swearing like that. But I didn't hear what he said because I had these in-ear monitors that his, his vocals cut out every now and then in the in-ears in my in-ears and they cut out right when he said that. So even though I was standing right next to him, I couldn't hear what he said. So I just kind of like smiled and went back. And then I was told after the show, what he said, similar thing happened earlier in the set. Um, before they played the song, we played the song Guilty Party. Matt was talking and I couldn't hear him. And he said something. I hear the crowd laugh, uh, like sort of roar in laughter. And Brian turned around to me and just kind of said, sick burn. And I just nodded, but I had no idea what he said. And I think he said something like, it's dedicated to Brett Kavanaugh, you know, Guilty Party. Anyway, so... Yeah, uh, both shows played well. So I was only going to play the first night just because thought, yeah, let's play one of the nights. But then when I went to pack up my gear, Kyle, the drum tech, said, oh, don't pack up your gear. I, I bet Brian will ask you to come back tomorrow. And I said, oh, well, all right. I'll just leave the gear here. And he's like, yeah, I'll take care of it. I'll put it with all the stuff. So then, yeah, 30 minutes later, I'm having a beer with Brian and we're talking. He said, oh, by the way, you're coming tomorrow, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, well, do you want to play? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, great. So then I played the next night too. I thought I played better the second night. I thought it was a little more, just more at ease. But also some of the songs just are easier to play with in the percussionist role. Like, And they did two different sets. So it was almost entirely different set list both nights. So uh, 
the one song one song I really enjoyed from Night Two was Fake Empire because the tempo of it is so nice. To, like you settle into a nice gallop when you're playing the per, playing like these percussion. Or like I was playing these toms and just settle into this gallop, and I'm weaving in and out of Brian's sort of like backbeat, and also the dynamics in the song are such that there's a lot of open space. So I was cutting through better. So it just felt like I was felt like the rhythm was really apparent the rhythm I was adding so I felt great and after the show I think Brian Brian is always very self-critical after show very critical of himself almost always and he after he said he's like well we did our damnedest and I said what are you talking about it was a great show and he's like well I don't know um and I said we know it was like I said, for example, Fake Empire is great. And he goes, it was great. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And then you get him talking like that, and then he realizes, oh, yeah, that was good, too. So, um, so yeah, both, night, both nights were fun. And it's such a, it's so nice to just see so many friends and family. Um, so Julie and Oliver came to the Saturday show. And it was the first time Julie seen me play any show in, in years. And it was Oliver's first time seeing me play drums that, I mean, not in, not in our basement, and and it just felt great to have him there. I, I was um, just ecstatic. He was there, and he, they sat sort of like on the floor at the side of the stage, and he had his little kid headphones on. It was very cute. And then also my brother and sister in law, Drew and Myung, and like and my nieces Olivia and Sophie came. It was their first time seeing me play, and it was their first time first concert. And then they sat with my friends, our friends Eric and Debbie, and also our friends Joe and Daria out in the crowd. So just knowing they were out there was, I don't know, just very, um, I, I was filled with this, uh, with this very warm and uh, very present sense of gratitude that I was playing for my family and friends there. And just playing these incredible songs with these close friends of mine. I'm just, you know, dream night very like dream two nights really and um and oliver got to see his like brian and beth's kids who are visiting from cincinnati and we see them often when we're in cincinnati so i think everyone had a good time kids had a good time i had a good time family had a good time band had a good time i know they thought the shows were good so yeah what an experience and forest hills is just a jewel of New York City venues. It's just a beautiful stadium. It's rich in history. Whoever re, like renovated it just it has every, everything is perfect there. It's like the style is perfect. The font, the, the sense of design, the little touches, the fan friendly touches. And backstage is great because the main artist area, the Nationals area, for example, which is the only time I've ever been backstage there, is they have this like the these like cabin it's like this single floor cabin with a front porch and it's in a u shape so um it it's almost like three different buildings but it's all just one cabin and it sort of centers around a small astroturfed courtyard and it's just so homey and comfortable back there and you know they have tennis balls everywhere which is funny and fun and little soccer balls and just kids running around playing and friends catching up and just or you just sit on these rocking chairs and just (laughs) literally rocking chairs on the porch and watch life go by watch backstage life go by um it's just like this idyllic setting and everyone's in a good mood because of it um it's just a nice place to go 
to after the show. You go back and grab a slice of pizza and I open a beer and you're sitting in this like log cabin after having played this great two hour show and just like on a you know 70 degree night in Queens, you're just like, wow, this is the life. Um, so for two nights, I lived the life um, out there. It's just fun to play. And so next on the cal- concert calendar for me is, uh, I don't think I'm playing a show this month, um, but November, what is it? 11, 10, 19, 8th, I think it is, but it's a Thursday, November 8th or whatever. Uh, the hard metal band that I play in Garden of the Ark with my friends Baxter and Craig, we're playing St. Vitus in Greenpoint for the second time. We played in May and um, St. Vitus is just, <laughs> it is the coolest place and it's very loud there. So, um, it'll be good. Um, I love playing St. Vitus. So that's the next show, which speaking of, I think we should actually start getting in a few practices before that. I'll send an email, even though they're the ones that usually organize everything. I don't ever have to do anything because those two are always so on the ball. Um, this has already gone way too long, 33 minutes. Let's see, I'll just finish with <clears throat> just a very quick beer update. I went back to Bar Great Harry down the block for more of that mad fat fluff beer that I love so much um, from Innerborough, a collaboration with Root Co., I think they're called. But anyway, has fluff in it, like you taste marshmallow, but not overly. It's just perfectly done. I love it. Um, and this week I went over to my friend Pete and Kara's house and our friend Steve from Chicago had left them some beer for us to enjoy from his last trip. He comes here often and I had this uh, untitled something. I can't, remember, I can't believe I can't remember right now, but beer from Milwaukee and the beer type was strawberry milkshake IPA and it tasted exactly like it sounds like it was tasted like strawberries, sort of creamy IPA and it was fantastic. All right guess that's it we discussed books we discussed music we discussed music more and beer for two seconds and that's it so yeah october 4th next week will be a little more quiet but um that's nice too and oh update on oliver's walking to school he's still a little anxious about going to schools which means like he walks a little slower than usual which is a little annoying and sometimes like the seven minute walk can become like a 12 minute walk but Overall, he's getting better at staying, keeping up with me. And, you know, only once a walk do I ever look back and there he is sort of defiantly standing four houses back there just looking at me. So he's getting better at walking, which is which is great because once the weather starts getting colder, I really want to get to school as soon as possible. So, yeah, hopefully Oliver's walking progress um, continues to improve. And that's it. Oh, let me get some outro music going. What should I do? I don't even know what to uh, do. Uh, how about this one? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's it for uh, October 4th, 2018. Conrad Life Report, Episode 3. I will see you next week.